In this video, we're going to talk about the individual as the proper beneficiary of his own moral action from Chapter 7 of Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. Stay tuned. All right, so let's start out with a summary. Leonard begins by making a distinction between the standard of ethics and the purpose of ethics. And you can think more generally, often we have an issue of a standard and a purpose. So if you're writing a novel, your standard is going to be kind of the principles of a good novel, but your purpose is going to be the execution of this particular novel. Or, I mean, you can think of in The Fountainhead, it's there's standards of proper building that Rourke talks about, but his purpose is going to be applying it to one particular building given the specific needs, resources available to execute on that building. And so from the objectivist perspective, the standard of morality, the abstract guidelines for what a moral life consists of is man's life, which we've already talked about. But the purpose is in achieving a particular life, which is yours. And so that is going to be then the essence of what we're covering here is that objectivism upholds egoism it upholds self-interest it upholds selfishness and people usually will classify rand as well she's an egoist and from the objectivist perspective that's true but that's not the whole of an ethics that this is who's the beneficiary of ethics but that a full ethics as we've talked about you need to know you have to have a standard a beneficiary and a primary virtue and so that the objectivist ethics is the total of these but now we're going to be focusing on this issue of that the reason to be moral what you're after what stake you have in ethics is your own life and the justification for this the validation of egoism is really a corollary of the whole argument for man's life as the standard so that what Leonard stresses here is implicit in saying that values arise from life and that it's a quest for self-preservation that gives rise to the need and possibility of valuing and that the standard is that the moral standard for human beings is man's life it's to guide the individual in the quest for self-preservation he even emphasizes that it's self-preservation and so the negative implication of this then is you can think of it as don't sacrifice that you need to pursue your interests neither sacrificing yourself to others nor others to yourself and that when it comes to dealing with other people we don't benefit through sacrifice that we benefit through knowledge trade and relationships now Leonard goes on to say that this doesn't mean you never help others, that we help others according to their importance in our lives, that as somebody out for your interests, part of your interests are the people that you care about. And, and so in proportion to how highly you value them, yes, you want to be able to help them. And this includes even strangers in an emergency. And he talks a little bit about the standards for that that as long as it's no sacrifice as an act of generosity one can and in certain circumstances should uh, offer help to others in an emergency we get then a distinction 
of the objectivist view of selfishness from what's often called psychological egoism, which is the idea that everybody necessarily is selfish. And his view is that no, selfishness is a moral concept and it applies to in the realm of choice, people choosing to pursue their interests and that that is a rare achievement. It's not something everybody does, that people all the time go around sacrificing themselves. And what egoism says is never sacrifice, that pursue what's ultimately good for you in every case on every issue as your ultimate value. And this doesn't mean though that objectivism is kind of an attenuated form of egoism or a qualified form of it. It's not that, well, there's what would really be good for you, but you should only engage in rational self-interest or non-sacrificial self-interest. That no, it's objectivism is all in on selfishness. Do everything that's good for you and only what's good for you, but that sacrificing others, it holds, is not good for you. Sacrificing yourself is obviously not good for you. So never sacrifice, not to the supernatural, not to other people. And we then close with a brief discussion. Leonard says he's not going to go into altruism, the idea that we our moral duty is to serve and sacrifice for others, because this is territory that he thinks Ayn Rand has covered all too well, and he has nothing to add except for we end with one polemical observation that whereas objectivism demands consistency, it's that you're only do what's good for you, never sacrifice. Altruism does not demand consistency. That would be instant suicide. If you literally just sacrificed every value you held to those, uh, to other people, like you would have to kill yourself. And so what it basically says is, go ahead, be selfish, do what's good for your life, unless we demand obedience in a particular case. So it's it, it, that what it really amounts to is, yes, sacrifice when we say so. And objectivism's view is, no, life demands consistency. Your life demands consistency. Never sacrifice a higher value to a lower value. Pursue your interests. So I want to start out with this question of, isn't everybody selfish? Or what in philosophy is called psychological egoism. It's the idea that everybody necessarily does what they think is in their self-interest. And I think it sets us up well for what's to come next. And it's an issue that a lot of people struggle with and particularly more intellectual people, people who have thought more about philosophy and not so much in philosophy, but like for instance, in the free market world, a lot of economists hold some version of psychological egoism. And it really, we can put it this way, undermines your ability to understand what Ayn Rand is saying, set aside even whether it's true. Now, we can start with why would this even be plausible that everybody automatically pursues their interests? And on one level, you can say it's that people have to want to do what they do in some sense. And then you could say, well, Ayn Rand doesn't disagree with that, but she thinks you have to make, it makes a big difference why they want to do it. Do they want to do it because they think it's good for them? Do they want to do it because they think it's their duty? Do they not even know why they want what they want? And that you can't treat those as all the same and say, oh, well, there's only one motivation in human life and it's selfishness. That is not at all uh, something that makes sense and brings clarity to the issue of human motivation. 
but you can also put it in terms that I think makes it more plausible. So want is just kind of too vague and you're clearly packaging together different things. But what if you put it in terms of, will human beings necessarily pursue pleasure and move away from pain, which is a really common view, particularly if you've ever delved into like self-help literature, this idea of, yeah, we naturally move towards pleasure and away from pain. And there is something really right about that. Like even if you imagine, for instance, a, a Christian who is taking certain actions that he think his, thinks his faith demands of him, there's a real sense of, all right, I did something good. I feel good about myself. I feel a sense of efficacy. Now that's all going to be muted and he's going to be torn by conflict and contradiction but there is a real kind of pleasure to it. And you could contrast that with, well, the alternative is, well, if he had violated what his religion said, then he'd be torn by guilt. And so there is a sense in which you can think of human beings as moving towards pleasure and away from pain. But what does that kind of analysis leave out? Because most, the vast majority of the pleasures that we seek are not physical pleasures. It's not the inbuilt pleasure of kind of scratching your arm or even the sheer physical pleasure of having sex, which from objectivism's view, as we'll get to, is primarily a spiritual pleasure. What's being left out of this analysis is values that beyond literal physical pleasure, the kind of pleasure that's mediated by no ideas, but just kind of like sensations on your skin, all pleasure and pain is mediated through values, through the things you care about. And the issue is those are not innate. Those are ultimately decided by your judgment. And so the to get at what's wrong with this idea of isn't everybody selfish, what we want to look at is the formation of people's values and think are all values selected by what people think is actually good for them. And so that I think we can say as a starting point is really the right perspective on what selfishness means. It's that your ultimate motivation is your own interest. It's what you think is genuinely good for you. And to be contrasted with an ultimate motivation that is something other than that. So if your ultimate motivation is to serve God, that's really what I'm after, to serve others or to do my duty or to achieve the public interest you there's many other ultimate motivations it's that you're selecting your values if to be genuinely selfish it's that you're selecting your values because you think ultimately this is good for me and therefore i'm never going to sacrifice something that i think is good for me for something less good or something that's bad for me that is really what it would mean to be selfish and so you could think most people, do they fit this? Well, I think most people don't have an ultimate motivation. They're not all in on a single goal that's kind of unifying what they care about and why they do what they do. Most people are not, and not just about selfishness. It's that most people aren't all in on being, following God's orders or serving the needs of others. They don't belong in any moral category. They don't have an ultimate motivation governing their actions and so to be selfish by contrast then is you're self-consciously aiming at your interests and so you need two things you need interests you need to define what you think is really good for you 
and then you need to aim at that in your actions, never sacrificing a higher value to a lower value or a non-value. And because it's not obvious what's good for you, because it's not self-evident, like what would actually add up to your interests, part of what it would mean to be selfish, to form a self-interest, is to really think about it, to give thought to what's genuinely good for me and what's not. And again, this is what we've been doing step by step since we've gotten to the good is we're thinking about what genuinely is good for a person. And is like, is that something that most people do? And it's not something that most people do. And in more specific terms, to think about what's good for you and, and to refuse to sacrifice your creating a hierarchy of values you're organizing your values into more and less important and trying to make sure that they all fit together into a self-sustaining whole and uh i wrote an article in the last few days on i guess two days ago called creating your hierarchy of values there's this idea in objectivism of that you have to formulate a hierarchy of values in order to pursue your self-interest but we don't get a ton of guidance and so i go into a little bit um, what a hierarchy of values is and how one would actually form form it and what it would mean to live according to a hierarchy of values. So check that out. It, I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's on my Medium page. But the so we're, what we said here so far is that selfishness in any moral categorization is about the ultimate goal, the ultimate aim of one's actions, and that not everybody does this. Now, there is a concept in objectivism for people who act without any concern for their, uh, without any particular governing aim, and that's the concept of whim worshipper. So they're not aiming on anything, they're acting on emotion, and the, I mean, the core emotion that Ayn Rand thinks a whim worshipper is acting towards, which we talked a little bit about when we talked about evil, though it's wider than people who are pure evil, is really they're acting to kind of protect themselves from negative emotions. So again, it's in some sense, you could say they're moving away from pain, but it's th this is really pain that comes from self-doubt, inferiority, self-hatred. And so that's kind of the essence of the, war the whim worshiper type. But even here, I want to caution against this idea of trying to divide everybody up into a handful of philosophic categories. So it's not true that everybody is either selfish, altruistic, or a whim worshiper. These are important categories, but the, uh, many people fall into the category of nothing. That, that you know, they're, they're not consistently following their whims. They're not aiming to achieve some conception of the good. It's yeah, well, sometimes they're acting on whims. Sometimes they're doing what they think is good for them. Sometimes they even have a conception of what would be good for them in a certain area. Sometimes they're sacrificing because they think that's what's good. Most people are nothing. And so you can't kind of just try to, you know, punch things into a handful of philosophic categories there uh, most people are all over the place and that is just a sheer fact about them ideas aren't irrelevant to understanding them and understanding how they function but you can't put them in a category in that way i do want to add though that there is what you could call an implicit egoist so it's not just that everybody's kind of nothing 
or an altruist or something like that. Um, there is what you could call an implicit egoist, but it's it's more than somebody who like seems who's you know not going around sacrificing. They have to. They're not fully self-conscious philosophically about what their interests are and why it's good, but they have a real sense of this is what my life's about. These are the personal values that are important to me, and I'm going to organize my life around that. And the you could take in a contemporary example, I would put somebody like Steve Jobs. This is not just somebody just doing what they feel like doing and everything, but particularly in the context of his career, it's that like I have a real vision of what I want my life to be about of the things that I care about of what's important to me and I strive to bring that into reality and that is a real category but if you think about our discussion of objectivity what we said when we discussed objectivity was it is self-conscious adherence to the method of logic that people could be logical before uh, before logic was formulated as a method that one could self-consciously embrace but that you're kind of just in a more hit or miss sort of approach to knowledge if you don't have objectivity as a guiding norm i think it's the same thing in ethics is that there are people who are really have a vision of what their life is and what and they're on a quest for happiness that they're in the position of somebody being logical before Aristotle formulates the laws of logic and enables objectivity is that there's likely going to be contradictions. It's going to be, they won't have a perspective that is saying, yes, I'm after my own interests and this is good and I'm going to do it full time. That's what philosophy ideally is giving you. That's what the objectivist ethics is striving to give you is how to, uh, in effect, have fidelity to that quest for personal happiness so for, i think if you see it this way that it's a real achievement even to have an ultimate aim to have an ultimate reason for why you're doing everything that you're doing and then to have it as that aim is my own interest what's good for me and then to think about what's objectively good for me and create a hierarchy of values and never sacrifice a higher value to a lower value. The idea that everybody does that is just insane from the objectivist perspective. And yet that is what it means to be selfish from the objectivist perspective. And that's why Leonard calls it a rare strength instead of kind of like this innate weakness of humanity. It's a strength because it requires an enormous amount of thought and effort. So the question at this point might be then well look why use the term selfish why use the term selfish in this context when objectivism has a distinctive meaning for it and it's very different from the conventional one and so i mean if you think about what do people regard as kind of symbols and representatives of selfishness well you'd think of like a jerk or a narcissist or it might be a power luster or Peter Keating or criminal. These are all the kind of symbols of selfishness. Ankar Gatte gave a talk where he started out by asking, if you were giving advice to your kid on you're about to set out on life, like let's say they're graduating from high school or college, and you know, you've spent your life trying to put them in a position to achieve what's best for them. You want them to be happy. You want them to be satisfied with their life. 
is what you would say, be a jerk, be a narcissist, be a power luster, be a Peter Keating. And the reason it's such a great question is because there's basically nobody on earth who would say, yeah, absolutely. And it's not simply that you would think, well, yeah, they would be happy, but then they would be kind of morally condemnatory. It's that you have a real sense of that is not a happy life. That is not the kind of life I want my kid to live because they would be miserable. I mean, they'd be in jail. They wouldn't have any friends. Like who would want to deal with them? Most of us have some sense that what's conventionally called selfish is at odds with what would produce a successful, authentically happy life. It's at odds with what advice you'd give people if your aim was to help them flourish and enjoy their life. And yet, on the other hand, there really does seem to be something right about calling them selfish. I mean, their their actions don't seem to have any concern with the impact on others. They seem to be only thinking of themselves and only care about themselves. And so what do we make of that issue? Now, Ayn Rand has an essay that I think is really undervalued here that is about that very issue called selfishness without a self. And I'm not going to go super deep into it. You should read that and read it in conjunction with the essay that comes before it in philosophy, Who Needs It?, Um, which is all about tribalism and what Ayn Rand calls the anti-conceptual mentality. And what selfishness without a self is, it's about what she calls a tribal lone wolf. So it's a person with the anti-conceptual mentality who doesn't think in terms of abstractions, um, but who's in effect kind of rejected by the tribe and in a certain way rejects the tribe. And what the kind of more relatable name that she gives to this is the amoralist. And she distinguishes it from a subjectivist, right? A subjectivist is a person who chooses their values emotionally, but that they can even be in many ways loyal to their their subjectively chosen values. The amoralist doesn't have any personal values, doesn't have any intellectual standards, doesn't um, have anything he's trying to live up to. It's the modus operandi, if you want to think of it that way, is like, I'm not good because I live up to any standard, not because I'm rational or intelligent or even something that's more neurotic, like I get a lot of people in bed or anything like that. It's, I'm, what I do is good because it's me. And what Ayn Rand thinks that really stands for in the end, however, is I'm no good through and through. That they're kind of to be self-centered in this way is to be self-doubt centered. That this is what I was talking about earlier about a person who they're not driven by any conception of what their interests is, their interests are. They're not driven by any standards. They're really driven kind of immediate short-term desire satisfaction, ultimately coming from avoiding negatives, which is confronting a feeling of inferiority, of self-doubt of self-contempt of self-hatred she thinks that is what you know what's called selfishness is really the lack of a self a person who has no self who has formulated no standards no principles no values no virtues that they're trying to live up to who has no long-term vision of what they want from life and that she puts it as um 
the grim joke on mankind is the fact that he, this person, the selfish without a self, the amoralist, is held up as a symbol of selfishness. But selfishness is a profoundly philosophical, conceptual achievement. And so, you know, in her view, people see the, the amoralists as selfish only because they have no concept of morality either, that they're anti-conceptual types who basically see the world in terms of, well, you're loyal to the tribe, you obey the tribe, you sacrifice to the tribe, or you don't. You rebel against it. And so it's from that perspective then that they would say, yeah, these people are selfish because they're not doing what the tribe orders. They're not following its commandments. They're not adhering to its rituals. And that's the essence of morality. That's what it means to be moral. It's what it means to be good. And so from their perspective, they can't see a distinction between the amoralist, who you could think, though this might be controversial with some of you, but I think would I would put a Trump in there. They can know they can see no difference between that and between a Howard Rourke, or even between a Peter Keating and a Howard Rourke. It's that they're both not obeying the tribe, and so the they can't even and and because they're anti-conceptual, it's not just that they put a Rourke and a Trump in the same package. It's that they can't really conceive of a Howard work. They can't imagine his mode of functioning. And this, if you remember, one of the most important and memorable scenes in The Fountainhead is that Rourke is basically in a room with a whole bunch of anti-conceptual mentalities who are telling him, hey, we're going to give you uh, this bank job, but all you have to do is let us kind of mess with your design, mess with the facade. And Rourke says, absolutely not. And they say, how could you be so selfless? Because being selfish would mean like just doing what's, you know, like obviously good for you, getting some money or something just very concrete and uh, almost on the level of sensations. They can't imagine the idea of principles being to your interests. And so it's Rourke was to tell them, no, that's the most selfish thing you've ever seen a man do. They can't conceive of a person who's motivated for his own interests and sees his own interests in ideas, principles, ideals. So what Rand is doing is, in using the term selfish, is she's reclaiming the term. And the reclaiming is really important. It's that, you know, people will often say to objectivists, all right, look, I get it. You don't mean the narcissist. You don't mean the amoralist. You don't mean the Al Capone or the Bernie Madoff who sacrifices others. Um, but that's how everybody uses the word. So what are you gonna? Why are you rewriting the English language and confusing the issue? Just use a different term, and then all will be well. And Rand's, Rand views herself as reclaiming it, and the reclamation point is important. So this is how Greg Samieri puts it in um, Egoism versus Altruism. I forget the exact title of the chapter, but it's I think it's something like Egoism versus Altruism in the Blackwell Companion. He says, structurally, Rand's stance here is like that of other thinkers who seek to reform language that they think reflects and reinforces widespread prejudices. 
In recent decades, there have been several movements, particularly by feminist and gay rights activists, to reclaim terms of denunciation or censure, such as slut, queer, and bossy. In each case, the reclamation involves retaining some core meaning of the term and severing it from additional connotations, both evaluative and descriptive, that the reclaimers think are improperly associated with the core meaning because of widely held prejudices. So Rand's view is not that the conventional meaning of the term selfishness is fine, but different from hers. It's that it's wrong. It's wrong because it reflects assumptions and prejudices that are not openly challenged. And specifically, it's that the selfishness without a self is the representative of self-interest, that that way of life is to his self-interest, and that to the extent one can even conceive of a Rourke or a Galt or a Dagny, that there's some fundamental similarity between them and the amoralist or the criminal or the thug. And the part of her view is that that assumption that the amoralist way of life is to a person's interest is not accidental. This, this is promoted and championed by altruists because it's by saying that, look, your alternative is sacrifice yourself to others or others to yourself that good people get swindled and say, yeah, I don't want to be a Trump or a Bernie Madoff. I want to do what's good. I want to be connected to people. I care about people. And therefore, I guess I have to sacrifice myself to others. And so imagine in that context where, where people are blending together a Rourke and a Trump and where they view the alternatives as sacrifice others or uh, sacrifice yourself. Now imagine if Ayn Rand came along and said, okay, I have a new philosophy. It's called selfism. And by selfism, I mean a person who pursues their own long-term best interests, their actual interests, neither sacrificing themselves to others nor others to themselves. Well, people are very gonna quickly going to say, and altruists are very quickly going to say, wait a minute, you're not sacrificing yourself to others? You're not putting the tribe before you? That's selfish. And we know a lot about selfishness. We know that it's the Al Capones. It's the motive that drives people to commit crimes. It's the motive that leads people to walk out on their children so that they can chase someone who's 30 years younger. Like that's what you're endorsing. And so at some point you have to fight the fight. At some point, you have to draw a line in the sand and challenge the assumption that that way of life is good for a person, that the motive is that person is thinking about what they want from life and what's going to be good for their life, and that's why they're doing it, that you have to challenge all of these assumptions that are embedded in the conventional way of thinking about selfishness. And so Ayn Rand, by reclaiming the title of selfish, is saying, you need to rethink this, that those people are not selfish, they're not concerned with their interests, and that it's only a Rourke who is a representative of selfishness. And that what altruism is really doing is not saying, don't be a Peter Keating, don't be an Al Capone, don't be a Trump. What altruism is really saying is, don't be a Rourke, don't be a Galt, don't be a Dagny. And that's the fight that she wants to fight, and that's why she's fighting for this word. So I want to end by talking about 
Rand's view that there's no conflicts of interest among men and that it's against one's interest to sacrifice others to self, which is obviously a kind of perennial issue of debate and something that people can really struggle with. And for starters, I want to note, you very rarely get an argument for why it would be good to sacrifice others to yourself. It's treated as obvious and then something that objectivists have to argue against. And it's treated as obvious precisely because people view one's interests as obvious. But as we've talked about and the context that we need to hold in mind, when we discuss man's life, we talked about in what way it is not at all obvious what is genuinely good for you, that you need to establish that through principles. You need to establish a set of values and virtues that cohere together into a self-sustaining whole. So one way to think about this issue of how we treat other people then in our relationships with other people is to ask ourselves, well, what values could we potentially get from other people? And two big ones that Iran stresses are knowledge and trade. And usually that's when people are talking about sacrificing others to self. It's typically through the issue of something like money. Like, shouldn't you try to get money from other people um, if it's, you know, even if it's bad for them, but hey, it's good for you. You've got the money. But you really have to ask yourself, well, where did those values come from? Where did they get the wealth? Where do they get the knowledge? And the right view is that, well, it's precisely they get those values the same way that any human being gets values. You create values through rationality and productiveness, through thinking and effort. And so it's only people who are on a quest for self-preservation and are engaging in the rationality, the thinking, and the productive the productiveness required in order to achieve values that have anything that could be worth getting through sacrifice. Okay, but how do we actually what are what, how do we actually gain those values? What is a kind of self-sustaining way that allows us to actually gain access to the values that other people are creating? And as we're going to talk about when we get to the virtues, Ayn Rand's view is well, the way that you actually gain the values of knowledge, trade, and companionship uh, from people, whether it's romance or friendship, is through trade. It is through offering an, it, offering a value in exchange. And so that is kind of like the sustainable model of gaining values from other people. And the question is, well, well why not use sacrifice as a tool? Why not if you want to put it in the terminology of Atlas Shrugged, why not resort to mooching or looting? And the I'll, I'll talk about this more in a second, but her view is that that is in effect unsustainable, that if their values come from them being on a quest for self-interest, then you're not going to be able to sustainably get values by sacrificing their self-interest. And so... This, I think, helps us appreciate what you can call the consistency argument for, for non-sacrifice. And this, if you just, if, well, I'll, I'll name what the argument is, but it's an argument that's easy to find deeply unsatisfying if you don't understand what it's doing. So this is how Leonard puts it in OPAR. 
Since egoism is a principle of human survival, it applies to all human beings. Every man, according to objectivism, should live by his own mind and for his own sake. Every man should pursue the values and practice the virtues that man's life requires. Since man survives by thought and production, every man should live and work as an independent, creative being, acquiring goods and services from others only by means of trade when both parties agree that trade is profitable. And as uh, he points out, the full proof of this is going to come when we look in depth at the virtues. But here, what I want to stress is that he's not saying, well, look, you could get values from other people all day. It would be wonderful by sacrificing them. But hey, logic basically forces you to accept that, no, you have to engage in non-sacrifice. Rather, it's that all human values come from a selfish way of life. Everything that human beings have to offer that's worth having comes from them being on a quest for their own happiness. And so you, what you need is you need a way that you can gain those benefits without sacrificing their quest for value creation, i.e. their quest for their own happiness. And we have that. We have the ability to deal with other people through trade, through win-win, and that this actually enhances value creation, doesn't just give us access to kind of a limited store of values that they make possible. It makes us, it creates far more values than any of us could have on our own. And so it's the, 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 when we're comparing sacrificing others, the contrast is this way of life where we're all pursuing our own interests and creating enormously more values by working together in a non-sacrificial way than we could in our own. And what are we giving that up for when we're resorting to mooching or looting? Well, the fullest exploration of this, obviously, is Atlas Shrugged. And there what we see is that the moochers and looters are trying to get values without respecting the fact that their prey have to live selfishly in order to create those values. And that ultimately what they end up doing is undermining the ability of the people they're relying on to create values. And in fact, the only thing that gives this any kind of illusion of sustainability, the only thing that gives the illusion that this ploy can actually work is, well, once I use up this victim, there'll be others. And in Atlas Shrugged, you see, well, what happens when you run out of victims? What happens when you run out of people you can exploit? It makes vividly real that this is not actually a sustainable model of human existence. But the, um, the, it doesn't, it, it doesn't mean though, and what I'm trying to highlight here is it doesn't mean that unless you literally run out of victims, this is really working out well for you. What I'm trying to highlight is that the actual values that you get from living your own life of reason and production, and then from trading with other people who are living selfish lives of reason and production, they're just on a different level completely uh, from what one could even potentially theoretically get through sacrifice. Now, again, we're going to explore all this in more detail when we get to the virtues. And the reason that we're putting it off is in part the, well, let me, I'll come back to that. Um, what I want to make here is that when a, let's take a person who's, let's say, um, going to rob a bank, right? Like, all right, I'm going to rob a bank, I'm going to make some money. 
Well, they're counting on the fact that they're rational and productive people. If everybody said, in effect, well, I'm, let's just rob banks, then there would be nothing in the banks to rob. Or if there was paper in those banks in the form of money, there'd be nothing worth buying. That what they're counting on is precisely people not living like them. They're counting on people exercising the virtues that actually create values, which then they're just going to loot. And the the attitude is in effect, you do the work, you pursue your interests, and then I'm going to live as a parasite. And so the you could you might think, all right, well, that's fine as long as society doesn't collapse. Um, but you have to think about what actually happens in reality is that these rational and productive people are going to turn all of their mental and many of their physical resources towards stopping you. That if they're on a quest for their self-interest, they're going to stop people who are a threat to that. And so now what you've done is you've taken the biggest potential boon to your self-interest and turned it into a threat. You've made enemies out of potential friends. And like, why, you know, if you thought for two seconds about that kind of equation, you would never do it, which is why actual criminals, the people who are allegedly, you know, out for their self-interest, they don't give it two seconds of thought. That if you actually, did, you know, run a calculation, which is not exactly the right way to think about it, you know, the downside is infinitely worse than any potential upside. Because even ask yourself like, okay, if I get away with it, what am I getting in return? And let's say you get some money. Let's say you get a lot of money. But is that money to my self-interest? And the answer would be, well, it's cert under certain conditions. But there's plenty of people who are rich and miserable. So you would have to think, all right, well, what are the conditions under which people are rich and happy? And that's where we get to the positive. And this is what I really want to highlight here is that there's no just kind of isolated argument against sacrificing others to self that that is all a secondary issue. The primary issue is establishing what's good, establishing that something really is a value. And so all of these kinds of arguments about sacrificing others or violating your standards, all of them come from treating certain things as obviously good for you without context, without having any conception of a whole life and how all the pieces of your life fit together into a self-sustaining whole. They just say, here's money or here's power, or here's fame or here's sex. It's a value, no matter what, prove it ain't so in this case. And it's, no, from our standpoint, it's a real achievement to establish that something is a value. It's, first of all, you have to have a goal, a standard that you're measuring things by. And then you have to be able to formulate principles that tell you how to enact and achieve that whole principles based on what well based on recognizing certain metaphysically given facts about reality remember our discussion this is the whole objectivist perspective and norms it's a goal plus a recognition of metaphysically given facts of reality that are going to lead us to principles that then fit together into a way of life that is free of conflicts and is moving us totally in a pro-life direction and so what the, when Ayn Rand gets to an idea like, are there conflicts of interest among men? She's not just staring in a vacuum. She's bringing in 
that whole context that we have to establish a set of principles based on metaphysically given facts and she's bringing in the central metaphysically given fact that all of ethics in her view rests on which is that man's basic means of survival is reason so if you look at her essay conflicts of interest among men she says all right let's look at four different aspects of the question reality context responsibility and effort and if you're not a careful reader and i wasn't at first for a long time it just seems like well that's weird she just kind of has a b c and d why those four aspects but they're not actually random and if you read the essay it is not just kind of four random pieces that she happened to say well this is what's good for you or whatever it's they're all aspects of chewing the virtue of rationality so here in the objectivist ethics is how she defines rationality and i want you to look for the kinds of concerns she's going to raise in conflicts of interest among men when she talks about reality context responsibility and effort the virtue of rationality means the recognition and acceptance of reason as one's only source of knowledge one's only judge of values and one's only guide to action it means one's total commitment to a state of full conscious awareness to the maintenance of a full mental focus in all issues in all choices in all of one's waking hours it means a commitment to the fullest perception of reality within one's power and to the constant active expansion of one's perception i.e of one's knowledge it means a commitment to the reality of one's own existence i.e to the principle that all of one's goals values and actions take place in reality and therefore that one must never place any value or consideration whatsoever above one's perception of reality it means a commitment to the principle that all of one's convictions values goals desires and actions must be based on derived from chosen and validated by a process of thought as precise and scrupulous a process of thought directed by as ruthlessly strict an application of logic as one's fullest capacity permits it means one's acceptance of the responsibility of forming one's own judgments and of living by the work of one's own mind which is the virtue of independence it means that one must never sacrifice one's convictions to the opinions or wishes of others which is the virtue of integrity that one must never attempt to fake reality in any manner which is the virtue of honesty that one must never seek or grant the unearned and undeserved neither in matter nor in spirit which is the virtue of justice it means that one must never desire effects without causes and that one must never enact a cause without assuming full responsibility for its effects that one must never act like a zombie i.e without knowing one's purposes and motives that one must never make any decisions form any convictions or seek any values out of context i.e apart from or against the total integrated sum of one's knowledge and above all that one must never seek to get away with contradictions and she has a little bit more to say but that's the kind of core of rationality and i think you can see that reality context uh responsibility and effort these are in her view this is precisely in grasping that reason is man's means of survival and that the standard of value is man's life that that is that that all is what's is is um in in putting those two together 
what you're getting is that there's a certain way of life, of living by reason, of exercising effort, of formulating your interests, your hierarchy of values in the full context of one's life and putting them together without contradiction. All of that is there in rationality. And so, well, if that's true, then if that's what our interest consists of, now she can ask, well, do they clash? So we can't just start with interest in a vacuum. It's no, this is what it means. These are what our basic fundamental interests are. Do they clash? And no, they don't. Because all clashing interests, questions, what they amount to is either taking one's desires as one's standard of one's interests, or it is taking too narrow a view of what those interests are. So for example, she gives the uh, the case of like, isn't in my interest to get a job? And it's, well, maybe if the hiring manager decides that I'm the best person for it. But as against what? Well, as against living in a world where, um, it, but, that, but that means I might not get the job, right? And so does that mean that my interest conflicts with the person who was selected because they were better for it? Well, what is the alternative, right? There has to be some alternative that would be even more to my interest where I get the job even though I'm less qualified. Is it in my interest to live in a world where people are not rewarded on the basis of ability, uh, where they're not free to compete for jobs and, and where jobs are just guaranteed by the government? No, that would be a disaster. And so it's if you keep the full context and if you take seriously that reason is man's basic means of survival, then all the it becomes really incoherent to even figure out what it would mean that our interests conflict in these cases, that it's always you're dropping the context, you're not thinking, you're not taking seriously reason as vital and crucial to establishing what your interests are and how to achieve them. And so I think for all of these kinds of clashing interests or prudent predator or cheating if you can get away with it type objections, all of it basically says we don't have to go through all this trouble that objectivism tries to go to to positively establish a set of values and virtues. We can just pluck things out of the ether that seem pretty good like money or job or you know getting somebody in bed and then say you guys prove that this is not to your interest. And from objectivism's perspective, we can't live by the seat of our pants. We have to actually think about what long-term fits together into a self-sustaining way of life. And that if you do, it's primarily this issue of being rational and that it's the rationality of others is not a threat to us, but a huge enormous benefit, which we access not through their sacrifices, but through trade. And so this is why objectivism's perspective is if you really want the best for yourself all the way, nothing but what's good for you in your life, then you have to take an approach to life that says no sacrifice, not sacrifices to me or not sacrifices from me. So here we've hit the idea of sacrificing others to self is wrong. It's not good for you. And in the next video, we'll talk about Ayn Rand's analysis of the morality that says the good is sacrificing yourself to others.
that's it for this video. Be sure to like it, subscribe to the YouTube channel and hit that bell. And as always, the best way to stay in touch is to go to donswriting.com and sign up for the newsletter. Talk next time.